information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Welcome, everyone, to this special bonus content from Blue Crew Medicine. This is a brief overview on Minnesota and Blakemore tubes, which are utilized for upper GI bleeds and esophageal varices. These complexly simple devices are used resuscitatively to stop active extravasation after a definitive airway is established. These can be placed in the ED or the ICU, but they're coming more and more commonly placed in large level one centers especially. Dr. Taylor Walks, Michael Griggs, PharmD, and myself, Will Appleby, discuss some of the indications, complications, and uses of these exotic GI devices. Hope you enjoy. So I feel like for some reason I attract GI bleeders. So I have had some experience with uh, placing uh, devices that can potentially, tamponade devices that can help. So your two basic ones that you're going to have, you're probably going to have one and not the other. There's a Blakemore tube and a Minnesota tube. So uh, I think first and foremost in that patient is protecting their airway. So if these patients are not intubated, that's step one. Don't want to bypass that step. But let's assume maybe they're they're intubated by your pre-hospital care team, or okay, so uh, it's something that that occurs, you know, right when the patient gets there. So I think the picture you're painting is someone who's visually spewing blood, or maybe they have someone put an OG tube in, not knowing or whatever, and it's spewing blood. So we have two devices, a Blakemore and a Minnesota tube, uh, essentially the same devices. They are slightly different. Won't get too much into it. It's basically a Minnesota tube has an extra aspiration port from the esophageal balloon. So, uh, but your hospital is probably going to have one or the other. Um, and even really small hospitals, I've been surprised have these. Uh, which I, I I would never think of. But yes. They uh, so basically, what it is is it's tamponade balloon. So you have this long rubber-like tube that has a balloon at the end that is uh, a gastric balloon that goes in the stomach. And then you have a long tube, uh, an esophageal balloon that goes in the esophagus. So I think first I've done six or seven of these. I learned uh, it's not just as simple as putting an OG tube in. I have learned these things either go in like butter or they don't go in well. Uh, There are not a lot of great data or things out there to explain, like how do we increase the chance of successfully doing this? Uh, you mean you can't just spread it in KY and call it a day? Well, so <laughs> I have some anecdotal experience, and I actually did a pretty large lit search on this after uh, try number two that was like, man, this did not go how I thought it was going to go. Uh, even went up to talk to our gastroenterology folks, for which the attending said, I haven't put one of these in since fellowship. So there are some a lot of different things out there uh, to, to potentially help increase the successful passage. Things like uh, some stuff that's out there is talking about soaking it in ice water. Well, it's not really a a benefit we have. We don't just keep these things soaking in ice water to make them more rigid. Uh, One thing that I have done several times is using a bougie uh, and putting it in the distal port to give it some rigidity. Anecdotally, I don't like it, and here's why. If you have the option, actually a pediatric bougie works better uh, because you have to get it in the distal port. Uh, and so it may help you pass it, but I've found that 
the, you have trying to, to retract it, it afterwards it, is a challenge. It is. And so from my experience, it actually, to me, I don't find it super helpful. I find that you may feel like you get it passed and then you can't get the bougie out. Um, or if you don't put the bougie in seated enough into the distal port, then it doesn't help. Some people recommend doing this under GlideScope visualization. Outside of getting it and making sure you're started midline, I'm not sure how much helpful how helpful that is. Again, I've done it with and without. To me, there are two things that really help. Uh, and it's, this, it's probably the two most simple things. When you get this out of the package, there is a small amount of air in both balloons. Pretty negligible, but it's not zero. Take every last bit of air out of the balloons. Easy, easy step number one. And the other is, this is not the patient to try and save the hospital 30 cents on KY. This is not the patient that I'm pulling the small packets out. I'm grabbing the big bottle and soaking this thing in KY because two, those are two simple things that, again, anecdotally, I think have really helped uh, increase successful passage. So just like you would an OG, uh, give a little anterior thrust to the mandible, put this in. Um, ideally, you have uh, x-ray at bedside uh, when you do this. So you really do the gastric balloon based off volume. And again, you need to look at whichever tube type you have and look at the instructions. To It'll tell you exactly the volume. But for, we have Minnesota tubes. Uh, and so what you do is put it in when you think it's in. And again, if it's not going 30 to 40 centimeters in, you're probably not in. Like if you put it in 15 to 20, it's probably not in. Uh, and so all the way in, put 50 cc's in the gastric balloon, shoot an x-ray. Make sure that thing's below the diaphragm. You could even put a little bit more in that if you were having trouble seeing it. Esophageal balloons are inflated based off of pressure, but I understand realistically not everyone has a manometer. Theoretically, ask your RT is probably the easiest person to ask. A lot of times they have a hidden manometer. Or just ask their crews. They all got them. <laughs> so, but most stuff will tell you that the esophagus can handle, can handle safely without risk of perforation 250 cc's of volume. So if you want to put a little bit more than 50, fine. Make sure it's below the diaphragm. Easy to shoot a quick x-ray. And when it's below the diaphragm, 500 total cc's into the gastric balloon. Again, this may be different based off of the tube you have. Um, then you can kind of wait for a second. A lot of stuff will say, once you inflate the gastric balloon, you really don't even have to inflate the esophageal balloon. The gastric balloon alone uh, will do it. If not, then you would be inflating the esophageal balloon. Um, again, make sure once you inflate the gastric balloon that you have the port hooked up to suction uh, and not clamped because that's not going to do you any good. And then when you do the esophageal balloon, it's technically based off pressure. Again, if you don't, you could theoretically use up to about 250 cc's of volume, get air on the side of caution a little bit. If you have a manometer, look at the package it'll tell you the vol the the pressure to put in there and then you can obviously hook that up to suction as well if it's a uh minnesota tube so blakemore tubes don't have a aspiration port to the esophageal balloon which is really the the difference these can be super helpful these patients are usually getting mtp they're on all adjunctive therapies probably biggest piece of advice just like anything else if it doesn't feel like it's going the right way don't force it the other thing I'll say about these, uh, part of the reason I'm glad we're talking about this, too, the, the balloons require attention. So you have to, the old school mentality was use a football helmet and you yep. really time off. Um, some people will time off to the head of the bed. 
I remember one night in the ER I rigged up this thing with a IV pole. Yeah. But whatever whatever it is, the balloons require attention. All you're doing to do is basically internally tamponade that variceal bleed to make it stop or slow down so that you can get all the blood and everything else in clot. Why does this matter? Especially matters in the transport world. So we don't transport very many of these very often. I never have. However, it's something I've always, because I've been exposed to Minnesota's and Blake Wars, what happens if you do? What happens if you have the patient and they have that, they have the tube, they place admit they place a Blake Moore somewhere. Hey, look, RGI doc's not comfortable, run out of blood, whatever it may be. They need MTP, they need to go to UMC, they need to go to some level one center. How do I facilitate the transport of these patients that my GI doc is not very comfortable, whatever? How do I how do I transport these patients? Well, you talked about air in encapsulated space. That's all air physiology with us is a big deal. So anytime even ET tubes we fill with saline when we go up to altitude, especially a fine IFR. For us, these are the patients that why we have a manometer and airway kit. I mean, it, it's you have to put a manometer on it, see what the balloon is, see what it's supposed to be. This, this is the conversations you're going to have with the sending facility. Hey, can you show me the package of where this came out of so I can see how much uh, air is actually coming out of here and what my pressures are supposed to be? Big thing is on the manometer. If it goes to red, it's a problem. But then at the same time, how am I going to make sure I have tension on the balloon? So am I going to have somebody sit there and hold it and hold it on the aircraft stretcher? Uh, most of these patients require to be sitting up just because the way they are, they don't do well sitting flat. So trying to figure out how you're going to move that patient's logistical thing, take your two seconds and sit there and kind of chill. Yeah. I think an easy thing to do that I've done uh, is Curlex in an IV bag. And you can do this. You can uh, have Curlex attached to the end of the tube, run the other end through the hole in an IV bag and throw it over anything that you can conjure up, uh, whether the bed has uh, attached IV poles, whatever, anything to pull tension. Like you said, it really is, it was the old thing to do was to put football helmets on these people and tie to a football helmet to hold traction. So, but these things, uh, probably some of the most. I just want to know where our football helmet went. I know we had one here. We had to have had one. What team was it? I don't know. It better have been Bulldogs. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I think these can be some of the most satisfying mm-hmm probably one of the most satisfying patients we've ever had. Put one of these in. Don't be afraid if when you hook it up to suction, you might want to have the next suction canister ready. Man, these can be cool patients. I've uh, had one uh, about a year ago. Put one of these in. Three suction canisters full where we kind of looked around the room like, I hope I didn't put that in the order with the way it looks like it's coming out, right? I mean, kind of joking, but you're like, God, that's a lot of blood. And then all of a sudden you see the, the fourth suction canister filling up about halfway and it just stops. So, and then five minutes later, they're still getting MTP. That map goes from 40 to 60. Um, and just, it can be a really truly life-saving procedure that it really is really not all that dissimilar from putting an OG tube in. Um, but knowing a little bit of a trick in the trade and then being comfortable with whatever kit you have. This this is not something that the first time you use it and trying to read through the instructions is when the patient's hemorrhaging. So just wherever you work at, uh, whatever kit you have, take five minutes, open it up, be familiar with what it looks like. Uh, obviously, they have a lot of different ports that can be confusing. Luckily, they're usually labeled pretty well. Having some extra stuff around, even if you don't have things like three-way stopcocks, things like that, that make it easier, if you have some hemostats and syringes, you can do this. So we keep in our, I helped create a kit that we have. We keep hemostats and uh, large syringes uh, in the kit because theoretically that's really all you need. Obviously, if you're, you're doing this in a, 
an IC or something where there are three-way stopcocks and like that are more available, you may have that, which makes it easier. But be familiar with your kit, especially like people that, like I said, smaller hospitals have these. You may not realize you do, but I, I would be surprised uh, if you really didn't have one. If you do, if you do scopes at your facility, more you than likely one. you have one. Yeah, absolutely. Again, is it in date? Questions, but you you probably have the tube. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Please don't hesitate to reach out and share our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Podbean.